0: Hey everyone, it's David here with the No-Code and Code podcast by Bridge, where we talk about scaling No-Code stacks, migrating the foundation to code, and integrating No-Code into the code foundation. Today, we have Vlad Laitis on from AirDev. Um, I've known about AirDev for about the last five years. They were one of the first Bubble agencies. They can build uh, just about anything with No-Code. If you don't know about Bubble, it's an extremely robust tool that uh, lets you build anything with no-code. So uh, Vlad and Nerdev have been able to uh, build some pretty pretty amazing things for clients. Uh, among their clients, they count HP, Lenovo, Teach for America, and Dividend. So yeah, the reason that we're having them on today is because they've built some of the biggest no-code apps that have scaled the furthest. Um, so I'm really excited about this. and. Yeah, excited for you to hopefully pick up some good tips for uh, influencing your projects. Before we dive in, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Content Allies. While they're our sponsor, they're also the force behind this podcast being created and other content at Bridge. Content Allies, who helps enable my team and I at Bridge to broadcast our message further by helping us create podcasts, articles, and social content. So if you'd like to expand the reach of your message, visit contentallies.com. Now let's dive in with Vlad. Cool. So I'm here with Vlad from AirDev. AirDev is one of the top no-code agencies, and Vlad has scaled web apps uh, further than most people, I'd say, maybe maybe further than anyone, um, So he's going to be sharing his experiences there uh, with us today. And yeah, glad to have you on here, Vlad. Yeah, thanks so
1: much. Thanks so much for having me on, David.
0: So um, yeah, do you kind of want to just go through like a brief intro about yourself and like how you got started with AirDev?
1: Sure. Yeah, happy happy to do that. So we started AirDev uh, back in 2015, um, but I actually started doing no-code stuff back in 2013. Um, And my story is that I was an MBA student at the time. And like most other MBA students, I didn't actually have any hard skills and didn't know how to uh, create software, but I had an idea for for an application that I wanted to launch for a startup. And so I was trying to figure out how to do it. I thought about hiring a team, but that was a very expensive route. I thought about trying to recruit some, but I couldn't find somebody to recruit who was an engineer who could build something. And, and then I kind of stumbled upon Bubble, which was about a year into its existence, maybe less than a year uh, into its existence at the time. And what happened was that my, my classmate, Andrew, was also working on an idea. And he, he told me that he was using this tool called Bubble to build his idea. And I checked it out. Um, I got really into it. So I ended up spending kind of my nights and weekends after school Uh, tinkering with Bubble and found it really fun in addition to actually being able to build the thing that I wanted to build, which by the way, was kind of a a social network marketplace type thing for exchanging people's time and skills and resources within communities. And so uh, I was able to build that, but I also found it really fun to do it. And to the point where I think I probably spent too much time actually like building stuff and tinkering with features versus trying to get a bunch of people to use it. But yeah, I found myself kind of being a developer and building a product and, and was able to launch the product. And at that time, Bubble was less than a year old, and I got a couple hundred people to sign up. And when I got a couple hundred people to sign up, it like crashed Bubble. Um, and so <laughs> that just speaks to how how uh, how early it was. And the product didn't work out. I graduated, moved out to San Francisco. Andrew happened to also move out to San Francisco, and we kind of stayed in touch and um, really saw bubble improve. And in the back of our heads, because we had just gone to business school and spe- specifically in business school, we studied one of the classes we took was, was uh, talked about this this theory of disruptive innovation. And it's the theory is by this professor named Clay Christensen. And the, the term has now been a little bit hijacked and used in a very broad context of, you kind of hear the word disruption everywhere. But disruptive yeah. innovation theory has a, a very specific uh, definition which is basically a new technology comes out, and that technology um, is significantly cheaper than the previous technology. And the famous example is uh, steel manufacturing. So the example that Professor Clay Christensen used was that uh, back in the day, you had these big integrated steel mills, which were very expensive, produced high-quality steel. And then these mini mills came out. um, And they made steel that was much lower quality, but much cheaper to make. And what happens is this new thing comes out, it's much cheaper, but at first it looks like a toy and it makes very poor quality stuff. So in the steel example, the steel is very poor quality and the incumbents, the the big steel manufacturers, don't worry about that as a threat because this this thing can only make crappy stuff. Um, But over time, the technology improves at a rate that's faster than the needs of the consumer. And at some point, it gets good enough for most things. And that's what happened in steel, where these mini mills over time got better and better and better. And, uh, and you know, over time, the integrated steel mills were basically disrupted by by this new way of, of making steel. And with this framework in mind, we kind of saw the same thing happening in, uh, in, in development, where we had this tool bubble. It was it felt a little toy-like and certainly a lot of people perceived it to be a toy, but we were able to build functional pieces of software. They weren't like production ready at the time and you couldn't launch them and have tens of thousands of users on them, but but they were functional. And we saw over a couple of years, the rate of improvement that Bubble had and we saw that it got a lot better and all of a sudden you can build much more interesting stuff on it. And so with that in mind, we saw a big opportunity for us, which was, Basically, introducing a new kind of a software developer, um, who is a an analytical developer, um, but a non-technical one, and we just think there are a lot more people like that out there. People who are, um, you know, who are good at spreadsheets but just never learn how to code. Um, and so that's a very long story to to your short answer, but that was yeah. kind of the the genesis of of AirDev back in back in 2015.
0: That's pretty awesome. And were were you, was Clay Christensen actually your professor?
1: No, no, he wasn't, he wasn't our professor. He, he did speak to us. um, Yeah. He's at at Harvard, right? Well, he, he passed away recently, but he was, yeah, yeah, yeah. he was at at Harvard and he, um, he, so he taught classes for a while, but then when we were there, he wasn't teaching uh, Mm -hmm. full time anymore. So we had, we had a different professor, but, um, but Professor Clay Christensen. Uh, spoke to us a few times and we still were studying his theories um through through the through the classes
0: yeah that's still very cool i mean i'm sure that even if he wasn't teaching it every day directly that you're still getting getting the information really close to the source whereas um, i I mean i read his book all my friends read his his book i mean yeah he's uh he's, he's a legend
1: yeah yeah he he's got he's got some very interesting theories, and I think there's a there's kind of a danger in in reading these theories and kind of seeing it everywhere, like basically yeah. over applying whatever and that's not just his theories but any theory. Um, and so there's always there's always an argument to be made whether um, a specific application is actually a good representation of that theory so um, yeah. There was a big argument at some point of whether Uber was a disruptive or non-disruptive innovation. Mm. And I don't actually know that I have a point of view on that, but this to us felt like a very close, um, it, it felt like a pretty good fit. New technology, yeah. looks like a toy, evolves quickly over time. Um, and so, so, yeah.
0: Totally, yeah. I mean, Bubble is an incredible tool in that. It, it was really the first one that I saw that, that kind of put all the pieces together from like the front end, the back end, and like the the logic I mean, it has basically Zapier baked in, and I mean, yeah, it's uh, it. It'll be interesting to see. Like, I, I've always been like, all right, what's going to be the first unicorn company that's on like a pure no-code stack? You know, maybe it'll be Bubble, maybe it'll be something on on something else. But it seems like with you and your clients, like you, it seems like if anyone has a good chance of, of building it and, you know, being a part of it, it's, it's you guys cause you just pushed everything to the limit and I mean, figured out how to just really innovate on the bubble platform and everything else. Um, I'm curious on the, on that end, like now, now that you have uh experience there, like how, how do you build an MVP stack? Like if a client comes in and says, okay, Vlad, like we, you know, we're, we're, experienced entrepreneurs, we're going to raise capital pretty quick. We need a prototype and, um, you know, we, we want to plan this thing so that like, we're, we want to move fast and, you know, not kind of over optimize things, but the, the probability that we scale really large is, is, uh, you know, it's, it's high probability that we scale and we want to do things, um, kind of the right way if we can to start, like, how would you, how do you go about that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. So we we always, before doing any build, um, we always go through a very detailed scoping process. So part of our philosophy is that uh, it, it, we don't actually think that in the very early stage, like the very first build, um, that you should do the thing of just getting started, getting going and building stuff without thinking through the details, um, which, which is a little bit counter to the lean methodology and when people ask us okay do you do lean or do you do waterfall we kind of say well we do we do a blend of both where the very first version that we build is a little bit more waterfall and it's very quick i mean most builds because we're using bubble take um a few weeks but it's waterfalling that we will plan the whole thing in advance um and we'll really get all of the details down on paper first before actually building anything and we think that's really important because of a couple of reasons so for us from a client perspective uh, setting expectations is um, is important and making sure we're aligned on pricing and timing. We actually fix our pricing and fix our timing. And to do that, we need to get very, very detailed and specific, but that's less relevant to your question. The second part is aligning on high-level architecture and making sure your data structure is set up in the right way is really critical. Um, and to do that, you kind of have to do a lot of planning in advance. Like you have to sit down and think through not only what is the first version look like, but what may the, you know, what may this product look like in six months, because how you built your database and, you know, how you structure the rest of the application will, will really affect that. Um, and so we go through this process where we will, we'll, it, it's a pretty extensive, usually multi-week scoping process through which we, we work with a client to really nail down the details. Oh, wow. um, and then, and then the, the 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 actual stack. I mean, most of the time it's just Bubble. Um, it used to be that we would need to supplement it more with other stuff, but now Bubble has gotten to the point where if you're building a web application, you can build most things on it, and if not, you you can plug in code or plug in an API. And so it's rare that uh, it's rare that you have to pair it with something else. But when we have paired it with something else, and especially for kind of larger clients. The common pairing that we've seen is Bubble plus Salesforce. Um, mm. Salesforce, of course, is sort of a no-code tool in its own. You can build stuff that does something and you do it without code. And the the nice thing about Salesforce is it's been around for a long time. And actually, I'm not a huge fan of Salesforce. I feel like Salesforce is a very sales-driven product. And as a result, they've kind of cobbled a lot of stuff together in a way that's not necessarily the most intuitive. Um, it's not kind of a product driven product. It's, it's more of a sales driven product, but it does have lots of integrations with enterprise level stuff. And so that, especially if you're building more of an enterprise level product, the bubble plus Salesforce stack,
0: um, can be, can be a powerful one. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, Salesforce is kind of like, I, I think it was the first, uh, very first SaaS tool, like cloud, cloud SaaS tool. Exactly. Yep. Um, yeah i mean so many people use it that that would make sense so with with that um, with that being said like on a technical level how do you guys uh, integrate into that and i'm curious like the first time you did it like what were some of the kind of novice mistakes that you made um, you know for, from like a stability and scalability perspective and then how do you how would you do that now
1: so it, it's gotten a lot easier overall, because back in the day, um, when Bubble wasn't as evolved as, as, as it is now, it didn't have a way to just plug into any API, which you, you have now. And any integration had to be done in a kind of a cobbled together way. Where the way I w- we would do it now is you can use Bubble to plug into any REST API, uh, or even a SOAP API, really, basically any modern API. Salesforce has a very robust API. So it's an api that allows you to do almost anything you want and so between those two things you can integrate them in in whatever way that you want to the critical piece with this sort of a with this sort of a stack um and really any stack when you when you integrate two big tools like that is where does the source of truth lie and where does the data actually lie? so we have some of our biggest clients from that, that we built products for back in the day, we ran into issues of kind of having to store data in two places and having it to be in sync, and that producing all kinds of issues. And sometimes those issues aren't even related to, uh, to like, sometimes they're related to something we did. Sometimes they're related to, you know, Salesforce has an outage. All of a sudden, anything you do in Bubble is now not being updated in Salesforce. Uh, now you have records out of sync. You then have to somehow sync them. Like that's a that's a big issue, and so really keeping architecture in mind, and ideally having one place where um, where the source of truth data lives is is important. It could be that it depends on the kind of data it is. So a lot of the time, when you have a Bubble plus Salesforce stack, you might have some data where the source so source of truth is Salesforce, some data where the source of truth is Bubble, um, but ideally there isn't uh, a lot of data, or ideally any data where it needs to live and be synced in both places. And if there is, then you better make sure that there are good processes in place for when that fails and data gets out of sync.
0: Interesting, okay. So you're fine having the source of the truth being in two areas. You just need to make sure that it's explicitly defined which areas which, um, so there aren't any syncing issues.
1: Yeah, because you might, uh, you, well, I think ideally, the, if the source of truth is, is in two areas, it's different truths in each area. Meaning, like. Your Salesforce might have your business data of all your transactions, but your Bubble might have the users who are actually logging in and viewing those transactions. And so, two different mm-hmm. sets of data um, that aren't that, that that are living in two different places. And then sometimes you might need to have, and, and ideally you don't need this, but if you need to have the same data that lives in two places. So if you need to have you know the the list of transactions living in both places then you better really make sure that, that the sync between those two is 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 robust
0: yeah yeah it's, it's interesting you say that because i've seen the same thing with with the clients i've worked with and i mean with my personal personal work as well it's once you start to have multiple sources of truth everything just gets super messy and that's sort of the thing that um i mean it seems like like going into it i, I know that I, I focus on this now it's just Making it so there is only one, and it's like a defined source of truth, and and you really have to be disciplined about that. Like as the, you know, the founder, the lead technologist, or you know, ideally everyone on your team, just understand the importance of not letting that get out of control. Because yeah, I mean, if if you're scaling and you just have multiple sources of truth, it's like, how do you calculate data on you know anything? It's like, how many users do you have? Well, uh, which database do you want me to run that number on? And Right. you know and if you have to report to an investor or something like that it I mean it, it's a slippery slope toward you know your, your numbers are just everywhere um have you found a way to like like you know with, with clients you've worked with that are like past like a you know an a round a b round and at that point like have you found a way to make it so there is um, one source of truth and uh, and things are more scalable that way?
1: Yeah, I think ideally, um, th- that's always the ideal. Is there's one source of truth, and yeah. you know, a lot of the time it is the Bubble database becomes the one source of truth, which I think wow. can work very well, but becomes more complicated if you are integrating with something like a Salesforce. Um, yeah. So the outcomes that we've seen are um, there's one source of truth. There are, or the good outcomes that we've seen are there is one source of truth, and that's Bubble. There are multiple, uh, like there's one source of truth, but it might be different for different kinds of data, which is the, the scenario I just mentioned. So you might have some stuff that lives in bubble, some stuff that lives in Salesforce, but it's very clearly delineated. This stuff is here. This stuff is here. You know, exactly where to turn to get your data. And then the other, the third scenario that we've seen is, um, especially for bigger companies, once you've raised some money and you've hired a development team is they set up an external third, thing and that's your source of truth. So now you're using bubble maybe for your front end stuff. Um, maybe, you know, you, you're, you're, um, your clients are going through it and doing some flow. Um, you're using Salesforce maybe for their, your sales staff and they're going through it and they're doing some flow, but all of the data actually lives in some other thing. Um, and, and both of those systems talk to that other thing in order to push and pull data.
0: Oh interesting. So this isn't like a data warehouse like a Snowflake or or Redshift. This is actually like a a new database that's like a Postgres database or something like that that is actually connected to the web app and and is can bubble is bubble pulling from that as well in those cases. Yeah, yeah so really?
1: that's exactly right. And it's pulling from there and there you can you can do a range of things. So you could do something where it's just a database and on top of that database The developers expose APIs and you plug into those APIs and you're pulling and pushing data in. And that's one version of it. And then the other version is on top of that database, you then in code also put your business logic. So you actually have your in-house developers maintaining your database, maintaining business logic on top of the database, and then exposing an API into into that business logic. And that's where you face the trade-off of like, where does your business logic live? Does it live in this Thing that's controlled by your internal coders, or does it live in something like a Bubble app or in something like Salesforce?
0: Wow, that's super interesting. So, so it's like whereas it starts with Bubble, you you pull the database out as one piece, and then you start to move the business logic into an application that that is on on top of the new database, and then you're using Bubble for the view. So that that's it. Seems like a. I mean, I'm curious to hear like how in, in practice uh, that's challenging, but it sounds like a a smooth path, at least, like it's, it's like, this is how to do it. Um, what are some of the things that you've seen there that like, like, I guess the, the problems, like the first time you did it, like, what were some of the assumptions that you made there of how that would work that it didn't work? And then now looking back on it, what is, uh, how would you go about that now? Like if if you planned it out with the, the new client from like point A to, you know, point series D.
1: Yeah, and you're specifically talking about the transition from having, let's say we have the entire application living on Bubble, all of a sudden, company really gets a bunch of money, they have an internal development team, and um, what you want to do is you want to create kind of a new stack where the business logic and the database lives in code maintained by coders, but we still want to keep Bubble because what that's useful for is creating very quick interfaces for various users to go through, and like, you don't want to get rid of that benefit. But have the the control of of code is that is that the is that the right,
0: the right yeah way to yeah think about um, that yeah I guess I'm I'm wondering like like if you if you zoom in and like look at that on a low level of like
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know I guess like the what were some of the challenges like on a low level to where you. I guess like the first time, if we just look at the database, like the first time you're pulling the database out, like what did that look like? If you were to just kind of zoom in on that story and what were the challenges there?
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah. I think there are, there are definitely some technical, like, I think the the two areas of challenges are like low level technical challenges and, um, and business challenges. So, and I think both are probably pretty interesting on the technical challenges. I think it's, the same challenges as you would experience doing any migration. It's probably actually not that different than doing any other migration. So for example, you have your old database, you have your new database. When you flip that switch, you wanna make sure that the new database has all of the stuff that the old database has. And so you, like how do you do that? You can't just like in a second migrate everything from this old database to the new database. You probably have to start by migrating at some early point pre-launch, migrating the database of that state to the new database. But then between when you do that and when you launch, more stuff happens in the old database. So you have to have a way to then like sync that data through. So, um, you know, things like that, that are probably, um, if somebody has been through any sort of a migration, the challenges are exactly the same. It's just that the Bubble tool is a different tool to do them with. But now Bubble has an inbound API, an outbound API, like. It does all the same things. And so the challenges is going to be very similar. I think the business challenges is an interesting one. And that's more, um, you know, like if you have a company that is been running on, um, it's been running on a no-code tool for a couple of years, what that company has gotten very used to for better or worse is that they need something done and they go to um, whoever is doing, using the no-code tool and they ask for it. And that thing gets done very, very quickly. And that's good in that it helps you move fast. It's also bad because sometimes you end up with kind of a cobbled together mess of a tool. And we can talk through more of that. Yeah, yeah. What, what are the implications of that? and why does it happen that way? But, but oftentimes you you end up basically get pretty fast speed. And so I think what happens on the business side is you migrate, you do this migration, and then all, all of a sudden, your speed really drops. Um, and somebody who's in sales and is very used to going to a big client and the client saying, "Hey, I would go with you guys, but first you need to have this feature," and then being like, "Sure, no problem. We'll have that. We'll have that in a week." Um, they won't be able to do that anymore. And so, a big challenge outside of there's lots of technical challenges like with any other migration, but the big business challenge is just your expectations have to in the organization have to be like pretty drastically. Realigned, um, yeah, and that that's that's a big thing to keep in mind.
0: Yeah, I, I know what you mean there. I mean, I was working with with one company, and um, I mean, my startup to it. It seems like that's a, a very uh, characteristic case of going from no code to code. Is is the shifting the culture and the expectations where it's so easy to just build this new thing and experiment with something, and then you know that thing becomes kind of a, like an expected part of the business an expected feature. And then, you know, it maybe isn't driving as much business value, but it was so easy to create initially that why not? And then you have to like scale that thing. And as you're describing, I mean, I can see how you're in the middle of migration. And then next thing you know, you have like five other database tables that just emerged. And now you have to worry about those. Um, Yeah. I mean, I, I totally, totally know what you mean there. And it, I mean, one of the challenges that, that seems like people face to what you uh what you just mentioned is like just the expect the changing of expectations that when things move into the code realm, that they just take longer. They take like two to five times longer sometimes because you just have to do more work planning. It's just a longer process. You you can't like you know just click a button and have like linkedin OAuth off <laughs> like you can in right. bubble it's actually it takes a day or so or you know sometimes a few days so um yeah, and sometimes
1: I mean that- when when using bubble it should take longer like i think a big a, a big thing to always think through with no code is is um how much planning should i be doing so and and there's always a spectrum there's on one end of the spectrum is I'm using a tool like Bubble, but I'm going to ignore that completely. I'm still going to plan my work just like I were planning it if I were using code. It's, the only thing is the execution of it will be done without code, and that'll save some time. But the, um, I will still go through the kind of a very diligent planning process, and I'll really get everyone aligned and everyone on board and all of that stuff before I actually execute anything. And I'll make sure to keep the architecture in mind for the future, and I'll do the right level of abstraction wherever needed. And so there's that end of the spectrum. And there's the other end of the spectrum, which is like, you come to me today, you tell me what you want, I'm going to add it in. You come to me tomorrow and I'm just going to continue kind of adding stuff in, optimizing for doing it as quickly as I possibly can. And I don't yeah. think there's a right answer because the right answer depends on a bunch of things. It probably depends on the kind of a company you have and it also depends on where in your company's life cycle you are. So, for example, if you are um, in the very early stages, what you want to optimize for is um, iterating very quickly, getting to product market fit, and figuring out really what what, it is, your pro- what is your product. And so, you probably want to be on the spectrum of just like doing things very quickly. If you're later in your company's stage of development, you want to optimize for more stability and making sure things are scalable. And so, that's where you would want to transition more uh, to, to really planning things. And and that's that's kind of the product lifecycle factor, but there's also the kind of a product that 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 you have. So um, you know, for certain, like if you're doing a B two B SaaS tool, there's probably more room for um, kind of like tacking on features quickly in in sort of random places. And if we're building like a a B two C social tool that has to be very streamlined and. Um, sort of very sleek for it to be a good experience you probably need to do more planning about how like how will it all work and so i think the there is no right answer that's universal but knowing like thinking about that in an active way as you're doing co-development is is important
0: totally yeah and as you're as you're describing the process you go through with clients it it makes me think about okay so once you get uh once we're working with a client where there's a kind of larger team on their end that's interfacing with you, and you know maybe there are uh, I, I don't know like five bubble developers or, or whoever, are you playing like lead engineer, lead product uh, manager to to kind of um, manage them under under you and say okay, here's how we need to handle architecture, here's how, what you need to do, and kind of instructing that way.
1: Yeah. So, so me specifically, sometimes, sometimes not, but we do have a pro we do have a product manager on every, on every project and that product manager may have one developer, two developers, three developers. um, And, but, but they, they, they have to be on it. Every project has them. And Mm -hmm. we, we don't just kind of, we, we used to do this uh, of kind of just pairing a developer with a client and saying, okay, you, you work it out, but we found that you need somebody is making sure to orchestrate things in the right way so we now we make sure that there's a there's a product manager on on every project
0: interesting what's a situation um i guess what's the most amount of uh team members on, on your team and their team that you've collaborated with on one project that's that's scaled pretty large
1: yeah i think on our team the most is probably like three or four. So not that large. I mean, there are sort of diminishing returns to this stuff as you, um, especially with bubble, you can get a lot done with a small team. And once you get to a three to four member team, um, you can move, you can move very quickly. And so we haven't gone past that. And then on the client side, um, I think there's a, there's kind of an interesting, there's, there's an interesting trajectory that companies goes through. So in the early stages, you have, um, one, maybe two people that you're working with. You have your CEO or the product person or whoever, but there's somebody who's in charge of product and that's where you work working. If a company then gets past that stage and starts scaling, all of a sudden there's a whole bunch of people that get involved in different roles. And usually they don't have processes in place yet to kind of collect everyone's feedback, process it, and have a single point of contact or a couple points of contact. Um, and so all of a sudden you go to having to interact with a whole bunch of people. And then if you go get a little bit further, the company, um, figures out its processes. They have, um, you know, they have their own product managers. They have their own, um, scrum masters or whatever you want to call them. And then that's where you go back to having fewer points of contact because they, they now filter all of the feedback to those few points of contacts. And, and we are working with those. So it's kind of an interesting interesting cycle that, that you go through on the client side.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it seems like a lot of it is, um, I mean, a traditional relationship as far as like a, a, a web development agency and a client, like as the client scales, you'd work with them. And then there's this, uh, this parallel thread of like, okay, what, what are the unique aspects that, that no code brings to that? And um and how does that change things? And um yeah, I mean it's 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 really interesting on that level. And I'm curious if you know if you think there is anything like different um different on the no code end, like a different kind of fundamental thing, like yeah. Um, well, I mean, I it's I, too I, big I pre- of a question.
1: No, no, no. I, I I I think that question totally makes sense. And I should preface all of my answers is that. In the no-code world, we have a very specific perspective. We use this one tool called Bubble because we think it's the most flexible and allows us to build the greatest range of things. So there could be lots of answers to a lot of your questions for people who are doing things on using different tool or they just have a different process. So my answers are kind of based on our process and based on using this tool. Um, but but I think the key the key difference really is, is the speed. Um, and so if the key difference is the speed, you, you kind of have to, um, adjust your process based on where in that spectrum you want to be. And so if it's, you want to move really, really quickly, then your process is probably having less of a product manager type time and having as as big of a direct relationship between somebody who's on the business side selling something and somebody who's building something like you just want to connect those people and have this continuous feedback loop as quickly as possible. And then, if you go all the way on the other side, too, you you have um, you're later in the stage. You want to really plan. You want to scale. Then that's where you would you would make sure that the product manager um, uh, you, the, the the product manager is very heavily involved in helping to plan everything. And I think that's probably both of those are probably pretty similar to what you would do with code. It's just maybe they get um, they get accentuated a little bit because of how how fast this is. So. It's, I don't think this is that different. It's probably the the same dynamic that plays out with conventional development. It's it's just the speed the the speed is what what makes the difference.
0: Yeah, that's interesting that you you would kind of slim down the product management layer, maybe not even have a product manager there and just have it directly directly the company interfacing with the developers. I can see how it just adds like a whole point of whole point of friction that could slow things down double if you if you just have another person that you're communicating through. That's pretty, yeah, that's one of the interesting things I was looking for is like that, that characteristic.
1: Right. Right. Exactly. And we always, we always have a product manager, but, but the role of the product manager, I think does, does change from being like, in one case, they're not really the gatekeeper. They're kind of a facilitator and they are, um, they're helping the developer and they're, um, they're answering questions. And if if there are things that need to be clarified, they jump in, but, um, that's optimized for speed. And then if you're optimized for stability and performance, that's where the, the product manager and like planning for the future, that's where the product manager becomes more of a gatekeeper. Um, and, uh, and, and, and yeah,
0: so, so that role, that role does change. Interesting. Yeah. One, one thing, um, like shifting gears a little, a little bit back into like the actual uh, app app development uh, technical bits how far is it that you notice that uh, you can push Bubble before the other team's engineering team like has to step in, or or they just feel compelled to step in? Like, what what does that look like, and how how large can you get before that has to happen?
1: Yeah, um, the answer is, I think, as is with most things, is it really depends. So, um, the the first question I think in the very even before getting to that point is like is bubble even the right tool so is it is it possible that in the very beginning before you start building anything you've already run into some limitation um, yeah. and so the 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 factors that that are that are part of that decision whether that happens before you start building anything or whether that happens at a some later point at some later point are one functionality so at what point are you going to run out of Features that you want to add, and um, the the big limitation is native. So, Bubble doesn't allow you doing building fully native stuff. You can build web applications only that are mobile responsive, and then you, if you want, you can wrap them in a native wrapper. But it's not fully native, so you can't do things like offline mode, or you can't support um, you know um, certain native hardware things, um, and so that's that's a thing where if your if your idea requires a native app right away don't use bubble use code i don't yet know of a tool of a no code tool that allows you to build kind of a fully functional high quality native app I, though i think that's kind of in the works and i'm sure there'll be one one of those uh, in the next two years um and and similarly if you know a year into your product you're you run into that functionality limitation and um, you need a native app. That's where you probably will need some developers, conventional developers, to step in and build that native app. And maybe at that point, you still use Bubble to do your backend stuff, and you expose an API, and your app then talks to that API. Um, but but I think that's one consideration is functionality, and within that functionality, I think native stuff is, is a big limitation. I think the second one is uh, scalability. So scalability meaning how many users can the thing support and um and like how basically like how um how much are those users doing and can the application still support those users so similarly that will probably that will depend we've seen applications that have gotten you know 20 30 40,000 daily users and bubble has handled them well um, we haven't yet seen one that has 500,000 daily users or a million daily users. Um, Not because Bubble necessarily couldn't handle them, it might or it might not, but we just haven't seen it yet. And so there is some point, there's likely some point that at at which it just, it, it probably, as of today, makes sense to transition to code if your application supports a large number of users. Now, there are some, especially in the business world, there are some kind, or like B2B world, there are some applications that even, even when they're very successful, they don't need to support a large number of users. And so that may never be a consideration. And then there are some, especially in the B2C world, where if this thing is minorly successful, now all of a sudden it needs to support tons of users. And so once again, there's there's a spectrum of, of where you would wanna do it. And sometimes it's never, and sometimes it's very early on. Um, and then I think the third and the final thing is um, a consideration to to think through and this is probably more even in the early days of making the decision if you want to use bubble is is a critical is performance and speed of the the speed of execution the the core of your application. And what I mean by that is like most people will probably say yeah performance and speed is really important to my application but I specifically am talking about things where um where that is the critical piece of it. So for example if you're building slack Or if you're building WhatsApp, the thing, you know, Slack, I think, was looking to optimize every message sent so they would execute under 0.1 seconds. And to do that, you just need a very precise level of control. And you won't have that level of control in bubble. And so, like, you shouldn't even start if you're building a Slack competitor. Don't use no code, or at least don't use Bubble, because you're not gonna have that level of um, precise fine-tuning. And if your whole business depends on this. Extremely fast speed of of doing something, you just won't be able won't be able to do it. But if you're building Airbnb and you know your booking action takes a second or two versus point 0.1 seconds, it doesn't really matter. That's an action that somebody does relatively infrequently, and they're they're not going to go away and not use your platform because um, because of that additional second. And so um, that's the other consideration, um, and and I think that's more of an upfront one of should I
0: even should I even use no code to 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 build this to build this tool that makes sense that makes sense yeah and on the um on the end of uh jeez oh, what was it um the the infrastructure bit um how many users like have you seen? Where it starts breaking down, and like either users or or complexity, where I guess there are just like tons of tons of tables, tons of associations, and maybe fewer row count, but just more of those. What are some of the kind of numbers there that you've seen in your experience where either things start to slow down, and where they're a huge nuisance, and then you're like, okay, should I move the code, or um, <clears throat> when does it just a, a hard stopper, and not, you know the whole app will just lock up?
1: I I think. Most of the answer to that depends on how well you architect the application. Um, there, are, I don't think there are any kind of absolute numbers or some, okay, beyond this number of users doing this many things, that's where it, it doesn't work. You might have an application where you've built it and architected it poorly and at 10 concurrent users, it breaks. It just won't support 10 concurrent users. And you might have an application that will support Ten thousand concurrent users just fine because you've built it. Um, you've built it in a good way. So I think a huge portion mm-hmm. of it is how you build it, and the number of tables is also. It's the same. It's the same thing. You might have a hundred tables, but if they're all really well architected and linked, and all the searches are done in the most efficient way, that's that's fine. It's completely fine to have hundred tables, and you might have one where there are a hundred tables, and everything is just so convoluted that it's impossible to to use or maintain. Um, and so I think the answer is it depends. I haven't seen, let's say, more than I think fifty thousand users using an application a day yet. I just I just haven't. And so mm-hmm. um, concurrently, we're um, just so total, I'm talking about total like, user daily, records. daily. Yeah, to, a total. Sorry, not total user records. Users within a single day. So sure, uh, daily users. So I think pro- probably around fifty k is the most I've seen. Um, and so it, it's possible that there is some. Hard limit of okay. Once you get to hundred thousand or five hundred, whatever it is, there there is some limit. But I, I don't know. I don't know what that would be. And most of that really depends on how you've architected the app. And I think over time, Bubble is trying to do what they're trying to do is they're trying to make it less and less important how you architect the app because what they're what they're looking mm-hmm. to do is they're looking to enable um, non-developers to build software and to have those non-developers need as few skills as possible to build that software. So they're trying to make it as simple as possible. Um, currently, it's still—it's I think more complicated than they would like it to be. And part of the complexity is really knowing how to architect things in the right way. And I think in the long term, they want to get smarter and smarter about that, where um, they will like you might make mistakes, but Bubble is smart enough to recognize those and kind of correct for them. Um, but but right now, there—it's certainly very possible and very easy to build things in a bad way, and as a result, have your application just not perform beyond a very low number of, uh, of users.
0: Definitely. Yeah, I mean, that, that was the tricky thing. Like when we were, um, when I was working on my first, like kind of major startup five years ago, when we were using Bubble. Um, that was the thing that was tricky for us. And we, uh, I mean, it was, it, Me at the time, I had like zero experience, uh, like architecting an application or like modeling a database, had no idea what I was doing and no one on our team did either. because we didn't have a technical co-founder yet, but we were still growing revenue 50% per month and, you know, had to figure out how to do it. And, um, yeah, I mean, the tricky thing was we, we had like the application would load in like three to four seconds for the page, which is acceptable. Um, then we would notice that if we had like a table on the page for like it like historical invoices for a user, it would then load a few seconds after, and it was like it was like so frustrating because it was like right. one little thing like that makes the application feel cheap. We were like you totally it, it's like you know not like a hard blocker, but we we're like there has to be some better way to do this and um I mean we were trying to figure out how to rearchitect it and um I mean, we, we tried like hiring so many people to do it. And I, I don't know, I guess we, maybe we could have done it. Maybe there was a way to do it that we just didn't know of, but we couldn't figure it out at the time. I'm curious, like, I mean, I, I haven't dug in the bubble since, since then, like, I think it was like four years ago, we were on it, you know, for a little while, but like, it, do you still see that happening now with like a poorly architected query where it'll show the data in the table, like? a few seconds after page load. And then like, how do you solve that? If you were like, just look at that on a really granular level.
1: Yeah, yeah, so I guess the, the two answers to what you said from a bunch of years ago might be that it was poorly done or Bubble couldn't handle it, like a yeah. combination of the two. It sounds like it's probably not the first one because if you had a bunch of people look at it and a bunch of people who really knew Bubble at the time, like they probably went through all the different things you can go through to. Uh, yeah. To do it, and so they probably optimize it to the max. And so I completely believe that it was Bubble not performing well uh, at the time. And interesting, I think what's happened is Bubble has gotten better, and so it is a lot faster. I think there are still times when it is not that fast, and that's where your you know the way you architect your search expressions and all of that really comes in and makes a difference. But I'm sure there's still occasions where Um, you're trying to do something very complex and you like you've optimized it to the max and it's still not the fastest thing. It's just, I think those are pretty few and far in between now, because what you can do is you can bubble has gotten much faster. You can do more complex expressions and you can um, you can change your database structure to accommodate for things that, that uh, things like that. So for example, if, Um, If you needed to do some complex nested search expression in order to display some data, one solution is try to optimize that query, but one is to update your database structure where you no longer need to do that complex of a query. You maybe have more redundancy in the structure. Maybe you have, instead of having one table that links to another table that links to another table, you have this table that links to this table directly, and in addition to this table, linking to this table. And so now you have multiple points of, of links where you may only need one, um, from kind of a structure perspective, but that really helps with speed. And so um, most of the time, there are ways to do things like that that will allow you to have it be relatively fast. And when I say relatively fast, it's still not to the point of a different tool or building it with code or somebody who's really good building something with code because you just can't control every aspect of it. Um but but building it to the point where it's a good user experience, I think is most of the time is is perfectly feasible.
0: Yeah, yeah, that that makes sense. With um, yeah, I mean re rearchitect rearchitecting the data structure like that. Yeah, I mean I, I remember we it was kind of funny because we we spent I mean I'd say like a few a few days like the, the whole engineering effort was like all right we need to figure out how to like make these these uh, queries run faster. And I remember we went on a Code Mentor and um, we we try to handful of bubble developers, we should have reached out to you guys right. back then. I mean, we knew we knew of you, but um I think we were also like like, oh, who's like a freelancer that we could bring on right. like full time too because we, we were like you know,
1: yeah,
0: yeah, and um <laughs> yeah, we tried a handful of people that we there were like super marginal gains, I think you know like twenty percent improvement yeah. or something, which nearly wasn't nearly enough. We needed like you know like five hundred percent improvement, and then we went on code <laughs> mentor and we were we were like. We were like, hey, you know, developer, like Rails developer, will you just like look at this database and kind of like teach us how to model it? And they'd be like, yeah, yeah, sure. And then like we'd screen share and it'd be bubble. And they would just be like, well, like what the hell is this? Like, what are you showing right. me? And right. then like, we'd never be able to hire them again. You know, they'd be busy in, in perpetuity. <laughs> yeah, um,
1: yeah. I mean, that, that's funny. the thing. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a new thing. It works in a different way. And you have to know this new thing really well. In order to yeah. use it it's not you can't it's not that transferable the the development skill set you kind of have to yeah answer. yeah there are things you you and probably some of them you kind of still have to know like for example if you're doing and some of them to know them you kind of just have to use bubble for a while or be like a regular on the forums and, and 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 so so one concrete example is when you do a search and then you do a filter you can do something called an advanced filter where you can do more advanced expressions And at least back in the day, when you were doing an advanced filter, that was happening on the client side um, Mm. versus a regular search expression or some some other filters that weren't advanced. Advanced is just here, like the term that Bubble uses, um, happened on the server side. And so whenever you added an advanced filter, all of a sudden your client would be downloading tons of data and it would have to process all that data and it would really slow down your app. If you were able to get rid of that one advanced expression and just have it somehow like rearchitect your database or do something else to have it all not use that advanced expression, your thing all of a sudden runs really fast. And so these are things where I don't think Bubble, like Bubble in the long term, doesn't want people to know things like that. That's not, you know, yeah, they, they want people to they want people to have a really easy time building software. But in the short term. While before they figured out all of the ways to optimize it, you kind of have to know all that stuff in order to make it performance. And there are a bunch of things like that, that are just, you just kind of have to know them in order to make your thing, your thing run fast.
0: Totally, yeah. That's, so that's been a feature that's been pushed since, uh, like in the last, I don't know, like two, three years or one, two years is like being able to dictate whether or not the, the, the query is happening on the, the client or the server.
1: No, it, you don't have was control there. over that. You just kind of have to know that if I add advanced filter, bubble yeah. will do this on the client side. And if I don't add an advanced filter, it'll do it on the server side. So if you know that you can just not include an advanced filter and then it'll happen on the server and it'll be faster, but it's, yeah, you don't control that yourself. You just control what the query is. And then based on that query bubble will decide, but you kind of have to know what bubble is thinking in order to optimize that query.
0: Yeah. You have to know like which, yeah. Yeah. Like where to plug it in, um, whether to use the advanced, advanced, uh, filter feature. That makes sense. That makes sense. So as you're scaling up, um, shifting gears again, as you're scaling up with a client, like one of the things that has been challenging with other companies that I've worked with is general, things like no code monitoring version control um and not having the same kind of git style workflows where like a a you know big shot product manager or someone like that comes in and they're like, all right, you know, show like where are all the diffs? How can I see what the new features are that are pushed? And it's like, okay, you're pushing with Zappier, what's going on? And then like, how do you how do you handle all of that kind of stuff? Um Scale or at a higher yeah. scale, better question. Uh, um,
1: yeah, the Bubble is still catching up to a lot of that stuff. Um, so for example, one of our larger clients was in the um, they were scaling when Bubble was a lot less mature, and at that point, there was no versioning, uh, there, there were no multiple development branches, there was just your development branch. And there was your live branch and you would just do the work in the development branch and push it into live branch. And so when, um, when this client was scaling, they needed more people to do stuff and they needed to a way to have more than just the development. They wanted a staging and wanted multiple development branches. Um, and so in that case, like even the bubble team, I think ended up doing even something custom for that client, but, uh, but now they have that. So they have the ability to um to create multiple branches and they've they've added that in the past year, I think. Um, They don't have the show me the list of changes thing that you mentioned. So that's yeah, that's one where somebody would come in and and they would they they might expect this, but they they wouldn't be able to see it. So you kind of have to accommodate it with something else. You kind of have to maintain a record somewhere of, you know, here are all the things that we've done as part of this release. And there are other, yeah, I'm sure there are other examples too of this, but but the bottom line is Bubble is sort of starting from catering to the very early stage entrepreneurs. And then over time, they're building, building more and more stuff to uh, cater to later stage entrepreneurs and bigger companies as their clients kind of mature with them. And so they're adding stuff all the time, but I imagine it'll be a few years before Bubble has fully caught up and now has all of the things that, that a PM who's used to work with traditional developers is used to is used to the, the functionality that they're used to having.
0: Totally, yeah. It's it's tough. <clears throat> it's tough on the platform ends, I'm sure, to be like, all right, am I going to develop the feature that makes it so that the users don't have to know how to like do a database model well or like pick client or server. And then it's like that, that's totally the opposite end of like, let's build out features to like Show which features, show which features have been pushed, and like air monitoring and stuff like that. They're two totally different directions of a, yeah. of, of user needs. Um, but and yeah, it's I mean, very
1: intentionally chosen early stage people as their target audience, and yeah. you know every one of these tools picks. They have to pick their target audience, and the features they build, and all of that is going to be driven by by that audience. Um, and so they've they've optimized around early stage, which I think has served them very well. But now as their clients mature and as they get more bigger clients who are interested in them, they will need to figure out the, the, the higher grade stuff, the more enterprise level stuff. And that would include some of the things that that you mentioned.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Have you, what's a system that you've set up with a client like that to where like, do, do the, do the product leads ask you like for, all right, every push, like show me the features that you're pushing or anything specific like that?
1: Yeah, exactly. It would be something like, um, you know, we. And in, in, by the way, more generally speaking, what 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 happens is when we start a project, we, we have our own methodology and our own um, project management system and that we use to, to do all this stuff. But uh, but a, as a company grows, they might get their own uh, tech department. They'll have their own processes, and so then we'll kind of plug into their process and follow those. And so, mm. for example, a client might use Jira. And we we don't use Jira internally, but the client might use Jira. And so in that case, we would we would use their Jira, and we would have okay. Here are the ten tickets that are going to be part of this release that are queued up for testing. Uh, each one describes exactly what was done as part of that ticket, and and your QA will will look at that, and and they'll be able to see it, even though there is no, you know, th- there's no way to review the code, the specific code changes, but they'll at least see the tickets with those descriptions. So things things like that.
0: Got it. Okay. So you'll like move, you'll move the JIRA ticket, um, you know, to say that, that you've, uh, you're basically ready for a view on it. And then exactly. And then they'll see the details that way. That makes sense. That makes sense. From the air monitoring perspective, have you figured out a way to like, like, I know one company I was working with, they were like, all right, we were used to air, air monitoring systems that are unified, where I can look at one dashboard and see the whole, the whole system. And then with no code, like, you know, it's, you can't really do that well yet. So is it, has there been a way that you've seen, um, like, like how's that worked in practice? To where you're working with a, a company and like their CTO wants to see that, like, like how have you dealt with that?
1: Yeah, I think that the two the two th- the two things, are one, Bubble does, um, have a have a log that you can you can access, and yeah. that log, has improved greatly over time. So before it was very unusable, or not very unusable, but not that easy to use. And, uh, and now it's much better and you can filter for things like errors and you can, uh, you can go back a certain amount of time depending on your plan and, and you can do all of that. So, um, they, they do have that built into the product. Uh, but what it doesn't do is it doesn't do things like sending out alerts when certain errors happen. Like it, it's yeah. just, if you're investigating something that may have happened, it's a good way to go back and, um, and, and dig into what happened at that specific time, but, but it doesn't proactively alert you. Um, but the other thing that they do have now is you can set up error handlers on your pages. Um, and so I might say, okay, I have this I have this button that allows the user to purchase something. Um, and I want to know anytime that there's an issue when somebody clicks this button. You can set up an error handler on that button, and then you would set up probably, Um, either you could just set up an email notification that goes out at that point, but a more robust way to do it would be to set up an abstraction. We have a new data object for an error and anytime an error occurs on that button, you create this new data object and you might also create it in 10 different other places throughout the application. And every time it creates data, uh, Mm. these data objects, and then you may have a setting on each object where you say, if it's this kind of an error then send an alert to these people. But if, and so you kind of have to just create that yourself. Um, but mm-hmm. it's not that hard because all you need is a new data object. You need um, to put some workflows in a few pages where if this button is clicked, create this new data object. And then you need a way to like, in, you need to create a backend workflow to just process each one of these error objects. And do something with it, depending on that object setting. So some of them, you might send a Slack notification or an email or whatever. So you you, you can set that up yourself, and you kind of have the flexibility to do it in, in whatever
0: way that you want to. Interesting. So you can kind of build your own error monitoring system and then integrate it into whatever the 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 code solution is with with like APIs.
1: Yep. Exactly. Oh, interesting. Um, you, yeah. You would you would you build, build your error monitoring system and then just have it do whatever, what, whatever you'd you want it to do.
0: I wonder if you could turn this into like a bubble plugin in the marketplace and then charge a massive amount to the companies that need it.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting, that's an interesting, uh, concept. I don't know what long-term is going to happen of, um, if that's the way it'll do it or companies will continue kind of yeah. doing their own solutions. Um, but, but yeah, you, you, um, I'm sure there's a way to kind of package it up and and give it to other people without having them needing to rebuild it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I didn't realize, I guess we didn't get far enough in bubble when when I was working on it to try to do this, but that's really cool that you can actually like see see the errors show up and then build a workflow around them and Bubble gives you access to that information.
1: And um, you may not so have been it. able to do it at that point. Like the, the there are a couple of things there that were probably not available five years ago, if I remember correctly. So yeah, the error handler thing of being able to detect an error, I don't think was available at that time um, or maybe it became available around that time. And then the ability to have backend workflows also at some point um became available, wasn't available before. So it's very possible that you just couldn't do those things at that time and and there was really no way around it.
0: No, you can, yeah. I mean it seems like it was zapier too. I mean you can set up like uh, zaps to trigger when an error happens. So I mean I imagine that you could you could hook that into um you know whatever your other system is. Like yeah I, I don't know if you've seen me on Twitter talking about like a GitHub for no code, but like okay what does that look like? Which is a very abstract idea. Like it wouldn't look right much it, it probably wouldn't look very close to GitHub, but something that like would be able to connect at like an infrastructure level, like the no code and code worlds, um, with like these kind of features that are that are more advanced. And I mean, yeah, it's, it seems like from the error monitoring perspective, like I mean, maybe there'd be some sort of a way to like hook in. Yeah, I don't know, create like a create like a plugin and plug-in and um in, in bubble and then like set up some sort of zap that that unifies like the errors. Um I don't know, that's kind of me brainstorming on the fly, but yeah, yeah, that's really I, cool that think Bubble has it.
1: As a general thing, most of the time if you're building a web application, most issues are solvable. Like you can yeah. solve them either natively within Bubble, you can write some code on top of Bubble to solve them, you can use an external API, like. It is very rare outside of the things that I just talked about, which are there no limitations like native apps. You don't have fine tuned control of like how quickly things execute. Um, But outside of those, you can, there are ways around almost
0: every, uh, almost every issue. That's really cool. That's really cool. So when, um, when you have migrated, is that typically something that, that your team will prompt and say like, okay, client, you know, it's, we're we're about up to the limit here. We should start moving stuff to code or is that stuff that you've seen that the client's like, all right, we want more control here. Um, like, what is what do those conversations typically look like? I'm curious.
1: Yeah, it's probably more of the latter. I mean, we're obviously pretty incentivized to like keep things on Bubble because that's, yeah. we work on Bubble and that's where we make our money. Um, at the same time, I think we do all have a philosophy of like, you should use the right tool for the job and sometimes like sometimes that tool is no code or in bubble specifically and sometimes it's not um so i don't think that if if somebody tells us hey we should migrate to code and we um we we agree like if if they want to build a native app like i don't think we're going to try to convince them hey don't don't do it um but we might not be the like the initiators of that usually are people who are experiencing the issue, which is usually the client. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, so so the, the dynamic that might happen is that a company might hire a bunch of engineers, um, maybe the higher CTO, CTO comes in, they have their previous experience. They've done a bunch of companies before. They don't, don't have any no-code experience because that's not how software is built in their yeah. mind. Um, and then they come in, they see the stack, and they think, okay, this needs to be rebuilt in the in in the conventional way. And so, that's a dynamic that we've seen play out over and over again: is is a push for um, for conventional development coming from a new CTO that comes on board. And and sometimes it is very warranted, and it is like for that stage of development the company is in, due to whatever limitations that we just talked about, it is the right it is the right thing to do. And sometimes it is more of a knee jerk reaction of um I, this just doesn't feel like the right way to do stuff without necessarily there being uh, hard reasons as to why it's not a, that's
0: a good way to do stuff. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean that's that's how I've seen it too. Like if it, it seems to be the same the same story where it's it's like um, company prototypes on no code, they have no code culture, and then there hits this point where you know money's coming in, you're successful. And you, you want like more custom features or or something like that, and then new CTO comes in and there's a it seems to be a correlation between like the more experienced the CTO is, the less likely they are to have ever used or heard of no code, and then they Absolutely. see it and they're like, what is this? All that's yeah. got to go. And and I've see, I mean, I'm curious to hear your experience on this, but the way I've seen it play out in in each case, and um, I mean, I could go into some detail on it uh, like my startup um but it it swings in the all right we're gonna do everything in code and then what happens is like the ops team doesn't have their analytics those get all messed up because you shift the database and then like the cult the development culture slows down tremendously and like the whole business team is used to pushing pushing code can't push it anymore and like and then it inevitably swings back but it's like this very painful, long process of swinging back, and like, I mean, one of the things I've been doing is uh, with like the consulting that I've been doing right now, and the um, and just the the content that I've been creating is like, like, how do you just instead of trying to instead of swinging all the way into the code direction, and then like reaching this code no code hybrid, like, what if we can just build the playbook to go no no code code right out of the gate, and then save everyone time and money and right. And make everyone happy, um, but but you know teach teach the co- the no coders how to do code in a more code code centric way, and then the, the coders like all right, here's this no code paradigm to integrate to. Um, it's really interesting that you've seen the same thing, and I'm I'm curious to like see more patterns, see more patterns of this, and see if it's just like the case every time. And it almost seems like it is. I mean, I, I have wow. yet to see a case where it hasn't been.
1: Yeah, I, I, what you described is 100% what I have seen. Um, and it, it is, it's exactly that. It swings over one way because somebody comes in and they think things are built in a really bad way. And the reason why they think they're built in a really bad way is because of all their experiences in the past suggested they built in a, in a bad way. So you, if you, you know, sat down with that person and you gave them something that said, it's all right, you know, take a deep breath, um, here's what's going on. Here's why it might be good. Here's why it might be bad. Here's why you might want to migrate. Here's why you might not want to migrate. And here are all the considerations. I think that would be um, that would be very useful. And and really, you know, no code. I, I really don't like the term no code because um, it suggests that it's like this complete deviation of how software has been built, but it's really not because all that it is it's an abstraction on top of what's been what's on top of code and and. But code is abstraction on top of other code. So like back when you started, back when computers became a thing, everything was done in zeros and ones because that's, you know, that's the only way electricity works. But then on top of that, you build assembly languages. And then on top of that, you build programming languages. And then, you know, your Ruby on Rails and frameworks. And so over time, abstractions are a known thing in code and they happen um, they happen very predictably. And, it's just the next abstraction. It's it's not a new, it's not a different, it's not that different than what's been happening before. And in every level of abstraction, there are always people who are saying, well, I like doing this, this low level way because it gives me more control. And I'm used to doing it this way. And then over time you figure out, well, the benefits of this higher level thing are outweigh the, the costs of the lower level thing. And so maybe I'm still going to do the lower level thing sometimes in cases where I need just need to have massive control but most of the time the high level thing is fine and this is just that it's the same it's the same thing it's just the next higher level thing and at some point who knows there might be the next higher level thing which is you know ai that creates apps for you um based on some inputs or something like that and that'll probably happen at some point but um but it's just kind of this natural natural progression of of how how software has been made
0: totally totally yeah I think it was um the GitHub founder who was like the future of of coding is not coding. Then right. you know that was, that was from the coding coding world, not the like no coding business world, but I know what you mean with it it it's the term no code is kind of it, not the best term, but it kind of is like the only term that fits in that it's you're not totally no coding like it's you're still there's still software development principles principles here at play I mean usually you are doing a little bit of coding even in like the no code software and then it's usually built in such a way where the the more you do the coding the more extensible it is right Um,
1: well and under the hood, it's all it's always converting to code right so it's always code it's just that how do you construct the thing Do do you use code or not use code and and so, Bubble before was using this term visual programming, which didn't really yeah. catch on. But, but I actually think is a better way to represent what it is, which is you're programming stuff. It's just instead of writing letters on a black screen, you are, you know, dragging things around and clicking things. Like it's just a different way. It's a different way to program. And yeah, I think no code establishes this kind of like code versus no code dichotomy, and it's not a true one. It's you know, it's 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 much more of a it's much more of a spectrum and and at the end of the day it's still it's still code it's just like how you create that code is different
0: yeah yeah it seems it seems like the the dichotomy comes in where, where it's like the business users building the software now and that just introduces right. this whole new array of issues that never were there totally and yeah i mean it it seems like that's that's part of the issue and then like culturally i mean what i've seen is like when. When there's this shift of all right, we're gonna do everything in code. Going back to this, um, the situation of like a new software development team comes in, new engineering leadership comes in. It's like it seems like a, it's this huge cultural issue where like the, the engineering methodologies aren't really in play in, in the no code space. And um, yeah, it's sort of like like proper proper data modeling. Like, uh, are you using a process and planning your your whole system right? Like most no coders don't do this. Like the fact that you guys do this is amazing. I wouldn't be surprised if most professional no coders don't do that kind of stuff either, because they're all coming from this business end. So
1: I think that's yeah. right. Yeah, it's 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 that it's that um, it, it is about a new group of people. Really, that's what it is. Because in the past, though there was a new abstraction added every time, it was still the developers, the coders that were using that abstraction. All of a sudden, now you have this much greater group of people who don't know necessarily what they're doing. It's their first foray into software development and, and they're jumping in and they're building stuff which is very scary and their mistakes bound to be made. But like that's a, I think that's a natural thing to, to figure out. and it's happened in other places. So you know, before PowerPoint became a thing, um, the way you would create your PowerPoints in an organization or your presentations in your organization, uh, because PowerPoint was a thing, is you would come to a department that would put together your presentation for you. I'm sure it was very nice. I'm sure it took a long time, and you had professionals who were very skilled in that thing doing doing PowerPoints. And then PowerPoint came out, and and all of a sudden everyone was doing presentations. And I'm sure there were a lot of crappy presentations. I'm sure people were making stuff that was not up to standard. And and then you might still have. Some people who are professionals in that, and that's what they specialize in, and they study the tool more deeply and they think about how to structure it more deeply. but you also have a lot of people who don't necessarily need all of the bells and whistles; they just need to be able to build a basic thing and and it's okay that they don't know all of the you know all of the crazy details. obviously, you should still make sure that there are certain things in place like security and all that but um but yeah, I think that's that is the that's the crux is it's a whole other group of people and it's a it's a much larger group of people the, the, at least the potential size of that group of people is much larger than the current group of developers it probably still it's not now yet um, but it will be and so it, yeah it, that, that that's a big that's a big shift
0: yeah it it, it will be interesting to just, just see like I mean right now there are so many software developers like you know hundreds I mean, millions, right? Right. Millions, like tens of millions. I I don't even know how many, but then the amount of no coders is so small, but it, it does seem like, I mean, you have all these business users that are just using a little bit and a little bit and a little bit more. And, you know, they may not consider themselves a a no coder or, you know, whatever you want to label these people as, but yeah, I mean, before you know it, there's, it's going to be like just about every business user is using these tools. And then, like how do you how do you make it so it is more smooth with, with the the software development engineering culture and them now, now in this unique area of being able to build together more or less? Um it's a really interesting interesting challenge. Um one question that I have for you that's not related to the no code space as much, but it's related to a uh you said this at the beginning and um it, it reminded me of um, when I was running my web design agency and we were building basically small business websites. Um, mm-hmm. You said, you said AirDev does fixed timing and fixed pricing, which is very interesting. Um, we would do that with, with small business websites, but there was always a clear out. Like It was always like, okay, we launched this thing. We'll build it on something like Squarespace. We'll teach the client how to maintain it. And that was that. In this instance, it's, it's interesting because with software development, it's almost like, like, how do you do it without having a retainer pop out the end? Um, And is it like fixed timing and pricing only on the prototype? Or like, do you actually do that past the prototype where it's like feature by feature? Or is it, does it convert into a retainer model? I'm really curious about that from the agency perspective.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Um, The, we, so we do have a retainer model. Um, in some cases, at a certain point in a project, it becomes very difficult to do everything feature by feature, and it's too slow. Like Companies don't want that because they just want to be able to move very quickly. And if you're then are like, well, let's sit down, let's think through this feature, let's figure out how long it's going to take and price it out, that just doesn't work. And so we absolutely have a retainer model, and, and a lot of our clients, and especially ones that are growing uh, quickly, will transition to that model, and it's a better model for them. At the same yeah. time, most of our initial builds um, Ninety-five p- plus percent are are fixed price and fixed scope. Wow! And the reason for that is because, um, and, and for a lot of them, we'll continue doing fixed price for a year or something. And and the reason is when we when we started, um, well, two reasons. And I think I touched on them briefly before, but it probably uh, makes sense to explain them a little bit more. Is when we started, we were new to the world of software development. Um, we're kind of feeling it out as we go, and we thought we we thought what are the what are the issues that people are having with software development firms? What are the problems? And the biggest problem that we found by far is misalignment of expectations. Clients expecting one thing, developers expecting a different thing. All of a sudden the project takes two to three times longer. There's a rule of pi. I don't know if you've heard of that before, but basically you take the developer's estimate, estimates and you multiply them by 3.14 in order to get to like how long and how much it will it will actually be, which is a crazy thing. And so yeah. a lot of people are very unhappy with their developers. And, and what we said is we need to figure out a way to, to not make that be the case because we want people to be happy with our work. And, and as part of that, we need to fix our pricing and I fix our timeline. And to do that, we need to get very, very detailed in scoping and really figure it all out first so that we can we can properly estimate it. And that works that works well. And the huge benefit outside of the client knowing exactly how much they're going to pay and how long it's going to take the huge benefit is the upfront thought makes for a better product. You then, because you're spending the time upfront to think through the edge cases, you will end up with a better thing than if you kind of just dove right in and uh, and started building stuff. And and of course, after we launch the initial thing, sometimes we will continue doing these kind of discrete chunks that we'll price out and sc- scope out um, on a fixed price, fixed timeline basis. And then sometimes especially when the client gains, gains traction will transition to a retainer model because that's more flexible. Um, but but we really have found that that first thing to be fixed being very, very useful for both us and the client.
0: Wow. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, on the client end, they love it. They love it. It's I, I'd be curious to know how many software development, I guess, how many code software development agencies would ever do fixed pricing. I just... If yeah, I was running it's, one, it's I'd be like, big, man, I'm never, I'm never doing fixed pricing. <laughs>
1: it, it, well, I think most think about that. And, and even some of the best ones, like, you know, Fogbot is a great, is a great agency. And, and yeah. they have a whole, I think that they have a whole blog post about why you should never do fixed pricing. And, yeah, you know, I think in a lot of cases you just can't do fixed pricing. And I understand that, but I think in our case, we have a way to do it and it it's a, it's a big benefit to both parties. And so, um, it, it's, it, it just, it just works differently, but, but yeah, yeah it, it really depends on, it depends on your approach.
0: Yeah. I mean, it makes sense on, on like in, in the no code space that you could do it more too, because if things take, you know, like two, two to five times faster, however many times faster in, in a no code environment, cause you have, you know, the power of abstraction, then you have more clients and projects that you can do more data points, more, like a historical record of, you know, how much something costs and certain with certain features and certain clients. And then
1: that's exactly right.
0: Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Cause we have stuff, we have lots of data points. We've done 200 plus projects. And so you, you really learn very quickly. And, uh, and the other thing is because it's a smaller amount of time, like the mistakes you're going to make are going to be much smaller, right? Like if, um, if you're doing a three week, four week project, and you kind of underestimate, and you have to work really hard at week four, that's not as bad as if you're doing a six month project and you just like, your errors are gonna be much larger at a larger scale. And so yeah. that's, another, that's another reason I think why we can uniquely do that.
0: Totally, that, that, makes, that makes perfect sense. All right, last question here. When do you think that we will see a unicorn on a pure no-code stack?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one. I feel like me specifically and people generally are very bad at predicting timelines. Um, and, you know, I, I remember like five years ago when we started AeroDev, actually one of the first projects that I did that was more for fun was this thing called not real Twitter, which was kind of a Twitter clone um, at that, at that time. And I, I you know, I sat in my room for for a few days and, and kind of cloned um, a lot of the Twitter functionality in UI. And we actually, we're actually working on a re-release that now five years later, but but that's a little separate. But anyway, as part of that original Twitter clone, we had a little introduction and it had a bunch of slides. And one of the slides was like, within, I think I said within five years, most uh, most developers will be like non-conventional developers. And that has not proven true at all. I mean, it is, it is a much, it's a much smaller number. And so I am very sure that there will be a unicorn no-code startup. I'm also very sure that there will be more no-code developers than there are code developers. Timelines are more difficult. So I I don't know. I think you know, 10 years is a very... If I had to pick an, a time horizon, which I think there will be one, 10 years seems very realistic to me. It could be that that's much shorter. It could be that it's... It's it's ten years, but um, but but the short answer is I I really don't know.
0: It seems to be a safe conservative bet, ten years. I know what <laughs> right. you mean with it. I, I thought VR was gonna take over everything by now, and for some reason it just hasn't stuck as much. Well, cool. thanks a ton for coming on. This was awesome. Me I mean, uh, I I'm fascinated by what you guys do. It's inspiring to hear how successful you've been, and um, yeah, really appreciate
1: it. Yeah, of course. It's it's my pleasure. It was a really really fun conversation. Really enjoyed it.
0: Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll include links to any of the tools that we spoke about here in the show notes. To keep up with the no-code and code conversation, you can follow me on Twitter at at underscore David Head. That's at underscore D-A-V-I-D-H-E-A-D. This podcast was created by my company, Bridge, and Content Allies. I want to tell you a little bit about Bridge for a moment. I created Bridge because I don't want to see any more companies stop growing because their no-code tools stop scaling. I personally scaled a lot of these tools to the limit and migrated to code many times over at the Y Combinator backed startup that I founded and other teams that I've been a part of, advised, and interviewed. I want to help share the insights that I've learned over the last few years with you now. To do this, my team and I at Bridge have created a free assessment for you to get personalized insights on when your stack will stop scaling and an action plan on what to do to migrate, including strategies for success, pitfalls to avoid, and new tools to use. To be clear, we're not sending you a blog post or anything. This is specific insights tailored to your exact stack, your company details, and how much traction you have. So if you're growing on no code, I highly recommend taking this to get ahead of the curve. You can take the free assessment at www.bridge.so scale. That's www.bridge.so slash s-c-a-l-e. So why is the assessment free? It's free because it helps us give back to the community, but it also helps us know which other pieces of content that we need to create. In addition to which other products, services, and features need to exist to make this no-code movement more successful? So I'll also be selecting 10 out of the first 100 submissions to set up one-on-one calls with, where you can ask me any questions that you want about how to be more successful with no-code tools. Again, the URL for the assessment is www.bridge.so/scale. That's www.bridge.so/scale. And before we head out, I want to give another shout out to Content Allies for helping us launch this podcast. Content Allies turns CEOs into thought leaders through content marketing. They interview you via video and then turn that interview into video clips, articles, podcasts, and social posts. They're the team that powers all the content that we do here at Bridge and this podcast that you're listening to. You can learn more and reach out to them at contentallies.com. That's C-O-N-T-E-N-T-A-L-L-I-E-S dot com.